Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show... How a new initiative called Last Gift is looking for human tissue donation to change the way HIV is studied. As it is now, they're targeting the live virus, and if they can figure out how to target the dormant virus, that would potentially lead the way to a cure. And we look at a new book on Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos, and discuss the important lessons it holds for Silicon Valley. This was a spectacular failure, and Theranos is virtually worthless. But first, a story of big-headedness. No, not the elaborate mental activity of Nobel Prize-winning scientists. It's a little different. We look at new research made by two teams working independently that found the same possible conclusion, a gene that may be responsible for humans' larger brains and intelligence compared to our nearest relatives, the ape. It is evolution's holy grail. But are we closer to understanding what made humans unique and where in the evolutionary history this change took place? I'm joined in the studio by Kiara Eisner, the Economist science correspondent. Kiara, welcome. Thank you. So very briefly, what is it that humans have that sets the species apart from other animals? So our brains are three times as large as our nearest relatives, the chimps and the gorillas. And this is pretty significant because the more space you have, the more neurons you have, the more connections that can be made, and the more intelligence the species can reach for. Tell me, two teams have found a gene exclusive to the human genome. What did the first team find and how did they find it? So they were comparing a kind of monkey, the macaque, with the human genome. And they weren't trying to find this, but they noticed a difference in this particular place, this gene that they couldn't find in the monkey's genome. So they looked more into it to see what it could mean because it was found in the cerebral cortex area of the genome, which could mean that it was one of the reasons why the cerebral cortex started to grow so large. So to verify that this was what they thought it might be, they did three different tests. They looked at the fossil record to see if the gene had started to appear right when human brains started to get bigger, and it did, which was encouraging. So they kept on going. They did an organoid experiment, which is they have a mini brain that they try to replicate, and they put the gene in there to see what happened, and the mini brain got bigger. And finally, they looked at humans with different diseases, humans with macroencephaly and microencephaly. And what are the differences? Macroencephaly means you have a larger brain, and microencephaly means you have smaller. So microencephaly has been in the news a lot because it's one of the things that can happen when a mother has Zika and her baby is born and has a smaller head. And they saw that in cases of macroencephaly, the gene was there, and in cases of microencephaly, it wasn't. 
And the second team found a similar thing, but it looked at it from a different angle. Yes. So they were trying to find this from the very beginning, and they were looking only at the human genome. So they did a scan of the genome, and they looked for a gene that was just like the one that they ended up finding, something that was highly expressed, something that was essential to brain growth, to neuron growth, and something that was, again, present exactly when they wanted it to be, when the human brain started getting bigger. Okay, so what is the significance of this to the human race? We basically can see that this gene is probably one of the reasons why human brains started getting larger. The gene works in a way that it takes uh, stem cells in the brain that usually turn into neurons, and it encourages the stem cells to regenerate instead of differentiating immediately into the neurons. So what you have is many, many more neurons than without the gene. So this tells us a little bit about our evolution, our past. What might the implications be for the future? Well, we can see that one of the perhaps downfalls of this gene is that it might have made humans more susceptible to diseases that come along with macroencephaly or microencephaly. And that's an interesting question because it leads us to think about whether growing bigger brains was a trade-off with being more susceptible to disease. So that's one of the things. What I'm really thinking of is gene therapy for nematodes and having worms that are super intelligent, having our friend the squid help us colonize Mars because we actually seed their brains so that they have bigger ones. So that's an interesting question, and it's one thing to think about because we can see that if this, if this gene had appeared slightly earlier we might have ended up with gorillas and chimps that were just as intelligent as humans. Of course, the process of growing a big brain occurs over millions and millions and millions of years. Even though the gene appeared, we didn't become hyper-intelligent immediately. So who knows? One of these similar genes might be in an animal right now that we consider to have normal intelligence for an animal, but it's slowly growing this larger brain. We don't know. So in effect, we have found the the cleverness gene, and we found it in humans, but we, we now can start looking for it elsewhere. Yes, it or something like it. This one is exclusive to humans, but it's interesting because it shows that even such a small, small change, just one duplication of a very common gene can lead to something as large as humans becoming intelligent. That's really fascinating. Kara, thank you very much. Thank you. Next up, much of the research conducted on HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, looks at patients' blood, as this is easy to collect and preserve. However, in the view of Davy Smith, a virologist at the University of California, purely focusing on the blood is a mistake. Instead, he has set up a project called Last Gift. It seeks HIV-positive volunteers who are terminally ill for other reasons and asks them to bequeath their tissue for cryogenic preservation and study. Joining me on the phone is Brent Crane, who wrote about this for this week's issue. Hello, Brent. Hello. So, Brent, what is so important about tissue samples rather than just blood? Well, the tissue is, is really where most of the HIV is hiding in the body. So the blood is only a tiny portion of, of where the HIV is. So if you want to know what it's really doing throughout the body, you have to be looking at all of the tissues. It sounds like we may have been making a mistake in how we've been studying HIV up until now then. It's certainly been inadequate um, in terms of trying to find a cure. 
I mean, blood has completely changed the game in terms of treatment. So the blood has provided everything that we've learned to be able to create antiretroviral drugs, which have changed HIV from pretty much a death sentence to a treatable condition. But a, but a cure, that data probably lies somewhere in a kind of greater understanding of, of the whole body's um, burden of HIV. So what are they going to do with all of the body rather than just, say, pieces of tissue from the appendix or the gallbladder, which most people probably would be willing to give up for research? They don't exactly maybe know why they need all these tissues. They just know what they don't know about them. So they're taking all these tissue with the hope that they will find something revelatory in terms of cure research. So they're going to have all these tissues. They're going to have them preserved and, you know, just over the course of several years, they're going to be pulling these out and, and looking at them under a microscope and, and trying to find something new. And how many volunteers do they have already? So each year, uh, Smith is recruiting five volunteers, and, and right now he has funding for five years. So they have five participants right now. I believe that two have died. So they have two sets of tissue to go over. Have they made any discoveries so far? Well, they, they've certainly made some interesting observations. So what Smith has found, or what Smith and his team have found, is a larger amount of, of live virus in certain tissues, um, in, in most of the tissues that they've looked at, than had previously been sort of assumed. So, so live virus is different from dormant virus, um, and the way that HIV works is that it kind of fuses into the gene. And when it's live, that means it's targetable by uh, antiretroviral medication targeting. But when it's dormant, it's, it's hiding, essentially. But since scientists have never been able to look at any of these tissues in, in their entirety, they weren't sure how prevalent the live virus was in these tissues until now. And, and what Smith and his team have found is that the live virus is much more prevalent. And what does this mean for the future of HIV research? It's potentially game-changing. It's potentially huge. Again, it all depends on what they find here. But if they discover the reason, uh, or the way, rather, how HIV can hide in, in tissue, in, in the genes, then it could potentially open up HIV for more comprehensive targeting and, and eradication in the body, rather than just as it is now, they're targeting the live virus. And if they can figure out how to target the dormant virus, that would potentially lead the way to a cure. That's fascinating. Brent, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. What are your thoughts on the last GIF operation or on research into human evolution? Tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Now, regular listeners to Babbage know that each week or thereabouts, we try to give away one book for free to listeners. But of course, we only have one book, and we ask the listeners to email in a response to a question. The book this week is Richard Rose's book, Energy, A Human History. Now, Rhodes is the author of many books, including The Making of the Atom Bomb. And the question is this. In a hundred years from now, what will be the dominant source of energy? that humans use. Now, of course, we can't really tell what it will be. We don't know that. So to win, what we are looking for is both originality and plausibility, but not feasibility. 
please send your answers to radio at economist.com. Finally, a new book called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Kerryrew of The Wall Street Journal explores the rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes, the former chief executive of Theranos. Now, the company was a privately held health tech company, and it is well known for its false claims that it had devised a revolutionary blood test in which patients only needed to use small amounts of blood. To discuss the book and what the lessons Silicon Valley can learn from Mrs. Holmes's fall and Theranos's dramatic tumble, I'm joined on the phone by Alexandra Sweetch-Bass, The Economist's U.S. technology editor. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, Ken. So, Alexandra, for people who don't know the history of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, can you explain what happened? Theranos has become a a legend in Silicon Valley. It was at one point one of the most prominent high-flying startups. It was led by a young woman named Elizabeth Holmes who had an idea that instead of going to draw blood and getting whole vials of blood drawn, that she could revolutionize blood testing by drawing blood from a single pinprick of blood and testing a whole array of conditions and diseases from that pinprick. Her face was on magazine covers. She was deemed the next Steve Jobs uh, by by the media. Uh, And then things went terribly wrong. She was exposed by the Wall Street Journal, and now an author has written a book on this whole saga. But she was exposed to have been really pushing the boundaries to pursue growth and continue raising the image and reputation of her startup over the interests of patients. So Theranos purported to test for a variety of conditions. In fact, the results were highly unreliable, and Theranos wasn't even doing most of the testing on its own devices. So this was a spectacular failure. Elizabeth Holmes has now been charged by the SEC for fraud, and Theranos is virtually worthless. So from star to cautionary tale is what Theranos represents. Let me go a little bit further on this. And it's a sensitive issue. You've written a lot about sexism in Silicon Valley. Let me pose the question about that sort of reverse sexism, if you will. And that is to say, do you think that a male CEO in the same situation would have received more scrutiny? Or do you think that actually we're in a stage in which Silicon Valley is just so dreamy-eyed and the media has its own problems as well as investors, etc., that in fact that a male CEO would have been uncovered at roughly the same time and that the idea of this reverse sexism of everyone wanting to see a young female succeed didn't play that much of a role? I think that part of our problem, and it affects both male and female entrepreneurs, is that we don't have enough of a real-world model for entrepreneurial success. So there's such a glorification of Steve Jobs in Silicon Valley that people want to act like him. And you see this young woman who um, John Kerry, in his book, suggests she's falsely speaking very deeply. She's potentially manipulating her voice. She's dressing in black turtlenecks. 
She goes in a, a luxury car with plates that are changing because that's what Steve Jobs did. She's modeling herself after the Silicon Valley's icon. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs do that today, um, male or female. It's not to dodge your question, but it's actually to suggest that the problem is different, that she didn't receive scrutiny because of her gender. And actually, that probably wouldn't have affected that. Her gender didn't affect the outcome of the company. I think what really happened is that people have dreamed of success and seen how a very brash man who was a lone innovator, who was very difficult to work with, came back and saved his company. So this is Steve Jobs with Apple and have tried to position themselves in that mold. Okay. So terrible story. The book. Is it a good book? It's a really interesting read. It gets you engaged. I don't think a lot of people won't be interested in the ins and outs of blood testing and the different types of analyzers. So I think in some parts, people will skip over it. But it's a fascinating tale that the journalist John Kerry was able to reconstruct. The one thing I found that was missing was analysis of Ms. Holmes' psychology. So there were some suggestions of what she was like as a person, but ultimately he was never able to get close enough to people who are still loyal to her to find out their version of events uh, and more analysis of what she's really like as a human being. So she um, is portrayed by all these people who found her unknowable uh, in the book. So she remains a mystery uh, even toward the end, although there are certainly suggestions of what drove her. I found I was longing for more, although there will be a Hollywood film uh, with Jennifer Lawrence starring as Elizabeth Holmes. So Maybe Hollywood will make up for some of what's lacking in this book. Alexandra, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, please consider taking out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. In London, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.